morning, everyone. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Joan. Appreciate it. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, we're excited. I, I know that we just sang that song, The Battle Belongs to the Lord. We've been talking about prayer and the importance of submission to God. We've been talking about how important it is for us to grasp the understanding of prayer. And so um, in recent weeks, we've been talking about dangerous prayers in the sermon series, and we were looking at the different aspects of it. And one of it, the first week was speak for your servant hears, talking about Samuel at the time of his calling. And then we talked through uh, and looking at Psalm 139, 23, and 24, and David, and how he asked God to, to search him and test him. And, and then we saw last week was about break me. We, we, we asked that dangerous prayer for God to break us, to break me as an individual. Now, for many years, we look at prayer as praying for certain people when either they're sick, they've hurt their foot, um, they have a job that they need to look for, um, they're asking God for wisdom, and those are all great prayers. But this prayer sermon series, we really wanted to ask God, what can we do for you? How can we be used by you in order for us to bring you honor and glory and praise? That it's not only about us and what you can do for us, but what can we do for you? And by doing so, we have to ask these and make these dangerous prayers our primary vital prayers throughout our days. That is so important for us to capture what God is trying to do in each of us. So asking God to say, break me, God, is a very, very powerful prayer. But as we ask that from God, God, break me, expect breaking. <laughs> well, this week, we're going to talk about send me. We're coming into this, this prayer now, send me. And so how is it that we could understand about send me? What does that really uh, mean. See, it, it really comes down to a prayer of availability. Am I going to ask God to use me in whatever he decides to do? And we're going to see that sometimes when we pray, we have to be ready at any time when God is calling us in a certain direction. Sometimes he may ask us um, to change a job. He may be leading us in a different direction. Are we willing to say, Lord, send me? He may send us to a different city or state or country saying, uh, I'm calling you to this. We have to be willing to say, here am I, Lord, send me. It may be that uh, you may be going through a difficult time in your life and you're not sure. You're a high school student and you're not sure where to go for college or what to do for a career. And so as you're entering in, you're asking God, help me, show me, what do I do for a different degree, or maybe you're looking and you're in college right now and you're looking and you're about to go somewhere and you think you're in a direction, all of a sudden God just changes saying, no, I want you to go in a different direction. That happened to me. Um, well, I just say, yes, Lord, send me. Tell me what to do. I'm available. You can help me out. Or maybe you're in a, in a relationship with someone you shouldn't be with anymore. Maybe you have a boyfriend or a girlfriend and you're a young person and you need to break up, and you're asking God for an upgrade. Okay, all right, well, yeah, hey, you know, God, work that out. Make that happen. Or maybe, I don't know, maybe you're a, a, a cat lover, and God's going to change you to be a dog lover. Or maybe you don't like animals at all, and God's going to change you and want to have an animal. I think my, my kids are praying for that right now for me. Um, 
Or maybe you're just working on a diet and you need to do Whole30 uh, or keto diet like me, and I need some changes in my life. Um, you know, hey, uh, if you want to know anything about Whole30, ask Courtney. She knows all about that. But the whole idea is that whatever it takes, joking all aside, whatever it takes, are we willing to say, Lord, here I am available. Do whatever you want to do with my life. In the Old Testament, we have seen in, uh, throughout the Old Testament, and God calls his servants, his prophets, his servants to do what he has assigned them to do. And I want to look at a couple of them that uh, may be different responses to God's calling. So uh, there are three different ones, and we're, we're going to look at them really quickly. Uh, the first one is Jonah. Here I am, I'm not going. He just pretty much responded by saying, I'm not going. There was a prompting, there was a nudging, there was, hey, a call, direct call. God said to him, here it is, um, I'm calling you, uh, in, in Jonah chapter 1, 1 through 3, I'm calling you to Tarshish. I'm calling you to call out the sin of Nineveh. And he said in verse one or verse two, arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So God is saying, yes, I'm calling you out. And what, how does Jonah respond? But it says, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went in the other direction. He didn't want anything to do with it. He's like, here am I, here I am. I'm not going, Lord. How many of us have done that? Someone's on the side of the road. There's a nudging. There's a prompting. We want to help them. And we're like, oh, man, I've got to make it to a meeting. Uh, Lord, not right now. I'm too busy. But maybe when I don't have anything else to do, I might pull over. I may pull over, but maybe not. Um, Lord, I, I just, it's not on my agenda today, Lord. I really don't think I can stop. But God may nudge at us and prompt us to do certain things. And here was Jonah not willing to do that, not willing um, to go. It even goes on further. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. He took an action. He says, Lord, not only am I not, I'm not going to listen to your prompting, I'm not going. I'm going in the other direction. Sometimes we just seem to do that. I can tell you I do. I can tell you that there are times in my life when God's nudging me and prompting me to talk to someone, and then I just got to look down at my phone. I just say, ah, man, I can't make it right now. I got to go to a meeting. Lord, don't interrupt me right now. Lord, don't disturb me right now. Lord, really, I mean, I'm available to you, but it's got to be on my time and on my agenda. It's not, I don't see it on my day planner. I don't see it on my schedule. It's not in my calendar. It's not in my appointment book. God's saying, but I'm nudging you and prompting you to do that. Now, I recall of a story um, of a certain man who was in our life group about seven or eight years ago. Julia and I hosted a life group from one of our churches, and um, one of the couples we knew were struggling in their marriage, but there was a, a certain individual that I could relate to because we had similar backgrounds. And so uh, one morning, Joya came downstairs, and she goes, I had a really weird dream of so-and-so. And I said, okay, tell me about it. Um, he was lying in bed in a hospital, all bandaged up from a motorcycle accident. And she goes, and no one knew where he was. I said, okay. Um, 
I don't know what that means. I, I have no idea. Anyway, honey, what's for breakfast? I mean, it's like, okay. You know, I just kind of pushed it off like one of your weird dreams again. And then a little bit later in the morning, we hear this. Ding dong, ding dong. Open the door, and it's that person. Look back at my wife. We're kind of looking at each other. And as he walked in, he said he was in the area and just wanted to stop in and say hello. But Joya noticed that. It, she sensed that. She has a good sense here that he wanted to talk to me, but I wasn't really kind of catching on to all of this. And she thought, maybe I should leave, but he kept saying, no, 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 you know, and we were just talking for a little bit, and I guess about, I don't know, 20 minutes or so later, he left. And we just didn't think much of it, and then I gather a couple of months later, we found out that this person died in a motorcycle accident. And no one could find him because he went back on drugs. Older gentleman, handful of years older than me, fell back into his past. God was prompting me and nudging me during that time to reach out to him, and I kept blowing it off. I got to tell you, honestly, I felt those promptings and those nudges, and I just, I just said, not now, not me. Lord, here I am I. I'm not going. And sometimes God has to challenge us to say, what? What do you mean you're not going? I called you to go. And that, to this day, still bugs me because I wasn't willing to stop. But Jonah was that way too. No, another one that we see in the scriptures, Moses says, here am I, send someone else. Here am I, send someone else. In Exodus 3.10, as we know, the burning bush episode, God was calling Moses to go and speak to the Pharaoh. And he says, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So he was calling Moses, who felt inadequate, insecure, not confident, couldn't speak well. Send my brother. He's a better speaker than I. And God was saying, I'm sending you. I'm calling you. I want to use you. Aren't you available? I can use you. I can make you a great speaker if you just allow me to do so. But Moses was all caught up in the fear and the concern. Because when you face, any one of us would face Pharaoh. Moses knew when he faced Pharaoh, even though he knew him, that he could die by just challenging him. And the fear so overwhelmed him that he lost his confidence in his relationship with God and the calling at the burning bush. And Yahweh called him, the self-existing God, the God of this universe, the one who created the heavens and the earth, the one who created you and I, the one who parted the Red Sea. Moses was the one whom God was calling to do this work ahead of him, and he just wasn't confident enough. And see, that's what was going on here. See, as Craig said in his book, and instead of living in confidence of God's calling, Moses was buried in his own insecurities. And so we can tend to find ourselves in our insecurities and inadequacies. We're looking to self, and God's saying, look to me. I'm calling you. I'm calling you. And Moses said, send someone else, not me, Lord. How many of us can go through that? We're challenged. We think we're not eloquent enough. We don't know the scriptures well enough. We don't understand. But that's what God is calling us. Number three, we have one with Isaiah. It says, here am I, send me. So here he responds in a manner which, in which God calls him, and he's willing to do it. 
It says right here in Isaiah 6, 8, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, which Isaiah speaking, here I am, here am I, send me. And here was God calling on Isaiah, and he was willing to do so. In fact, this is what he was saying. Here am I, Lord, I'm available. Whatever you want, Lord, I'm available. In fact, he goes on to say, here am I, Lord, you have permission to interrupt me. You can disturb me, change my agenda, do whatever you want. Here I am, Lord. It's not about me. It's about you. What do you want me to do? I am your servant. You bought me with a price. I bear the name of Christ. I represent you. I'm an ambassador for Jesus. Whatever you want, Lord, send me. When you send off a U.S. ambassador for any other country, when the president says, I want you to do something, the ambassador says, yes, sir, what would you have me to do? He's representing America on our behalf. But he's representing the president as well. When you and I are called, we have to be willing to be interrupted. You can't say, oh, Mr. President, I'm busy right now. I'm in a meeting. Can't talk right now. I'll meet with you in a couple of days. No, you don't do that with the president. When the president calls you, you say, yes, sir. Excuse me, gentlemen. The president's calling me right now. (laughs) See you. I got to go. That's what God's doing to each one of us. When he's prompting and he's nudging at us, he wants us to say, here am I, Lord, send me. I'm available. In fact, when we say it, send me, Lord, we're, we're saying no matter what, where, how, and when, I'm ready. I'm ready. It's not about the church or the pastor. It's not about any of that. We serve the living God, the living God who saved us from our sin. Are we not going to say, yes, Lord, here I am available? Or we're going to say, no, I don't like the way that pastor talks or this pastor talks or those people do or those people do. I'm not going to do it. Well, then, okay, no problem. But you're saying no to God, not to me. You're saying no to God. God is calling each one of us because I don't say no one to, I either say yes or no to the Lord. That's whom I have to answer to as well because we're all sent out. So why are we surprised when we have to give up our agenda? Why are we surprised? I mean, what will it take to truly have this attitude, unlike Jonah, unlike Moses, but like an Isaiah, and say, here am I. Here am I. Lord, send me. Send me, Lord. How will that take? I think it takes a fully surrendered heart to God. In fact, this is what I would want to propose to you today. In order to fully surrender to God, In order to get to this place of, Lord, send me, we need a couple of things here. Number one, a sincere experience with the presence of God. We're going to look back here now to Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. We're going to see how was it that Isaiah himself had this attitude of, send me, Lord, send me, with a willing, obedient heart, available, willing to be interrupted and disturbed. This is what we see first, that he had an experience with God. In chapter 6, verse 1, it says this, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne. This is around 739 BC. It's the beginning of his prophetic ministry. God's calling him. And here is Isaiah standing before Almighty God. Now, you have to understand that there's a throne. And so in his mind, he sees earthly thrones. He sees kings that sit on. He sees servants. He sees people all around them serving at every beck and call for the king. The king's word, his signet ring of authority, he, what he says goes. 
And so here is a king-like, a, a, a presence that he sees in his finite mind. He sees this vision of Almighty God. But you have to understand, too, as he's seeing this vision, it's not only what he sees, it's what he feels in the presence, that we have the uniqueness of a holy God distinct from his people who are created in infiniteness, and yet you see a God who's infinitude, which we call the infinitude, the transcendency of God, that he's different than any one of us. And so he stands alone, unique, godlike, supreme, supernatural majesty, seated high and lifted to what we would understand in the book of Isaiah. That's why Satan wanted to be like God. He wanted to be high and lifted. And just like each and every one of us, when we have an agenda, we want to be high and lifted. We want to be able to do what we want to do in our flesh. But here's God distinct, unique, and the train of his robe is filling the temple. So here is the eternal sanctuary. One of the things I do every week and throughout the week before I preach, I say, oh, God, I need a word from your eternal sanctuary. you got to give me your word for your people because, Lord, it's not about me and about what I think. But, Lord, I want to hear your word from your eternal sanctuary. Oh, God, and I envision that he's sitting there with Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father and the Holy Spirit lives with me saying, God, I know you'll give me a word because I'm your servant. And I don't want Bruno to stand out. I want him out of the way so that, God, you'll be in the way. You'll be right there. And people will see Christ. And that only way, when they see Christ, then lives will be changed. That's what it's going to take. And so here he is in the presence of God. And in verse 2, it goes on. It says, above him stood the seraphim, which was a angel who was there and, and similar to Revelation 4 and each of them having six wings. So there's seraphim all around the altar and the throne of God. And it says that with two he covered his face because they could not see God. Because the Bible says if one would see God, he would die. Just like we know in Genesis 32 with Jacob. And we know that and throughout the Old Testament that one, even, even Moses had to cover himself with Shekinah glory. Here was two, the seraphim had to cover their eyes. So they couldn't gaze into the Shekinah glory, the glory of God because of his majesty and magnificent glory as it's shown. And here he has his two feet covered. Two of them that their feet are covered because of lowliness and humility at the feet. Just like Jesus when he rubbed the feet of his disciples, the humility that was involved there. Here is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, God incarnate, Son of God, rubbing the feet of his servants. And here was the seraphim covering their feet because they recognized that they were lowly and humble before Almighty God. And the other two where they flew around because they were serving around the altar, available, saying, Lord, here I am. Interrupt me. Disturb me. I'm at your beck and call. I am your servant. I am your messenger. I am your angel. What would you have me to do? So here is a seraphim ministering unto the Lord. And then verse 3, it says, and one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. It's the trihagen as it's known to speak repetitively, some would believe that, that the angels were saying, holy is the Father, holy is the Son, holy is the Spirit. I'm not sure about that, but I know that in the triagent they were showing the distinctiveness of God, that he's true and just and righteous. He's immutable. He is God. He is Yahweh. He is Elohim. He is Adonai. And it goes on to say this, the whole earth is full of his glory. 
the full the whole earth is full of his glory because he is the he is the king of kings he is the he is the creator the designer the protector the savior he is the military in chief the judge who can judge anyone at any time and still shut the doors of heaven and still be god because he doesn't have to save his creation to be god that's the beauty of god god can do that but here in god and his presence and his magnificence he would be the judge and here, the whole earth is full of his glory. Psalm 8, 1, it says this, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Psalm 19, 1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. That means general revelation. Everything we see is perfect. Telios, perfect. The designer, perfect. No man is without excuse. Every man will be accountable to this God who's created the heavens and the earth. And in his presence, in his eternal sanctuary, Isaiah sees this. And he's giving, he sees the glory that is shined from his own messengers of the seraphim. And in even verse 4, it goes on and says, And the foundations of the thresholds shook at a voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. I mean, God's presence was known through uh, the, the, the physical tremor or smoke. As it's seen in Exodus 19.18, it says, Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in the fire when Moses was on Mount Sinai with the giving of the Ten Commandments. And it says that the smoke went up and the whole mountain trembled greatly. That was the very presence of God, the true experience of his presence. Are we doing that? Are we truly in his presence? Are we taking a time in our schedule saying, sure, God, interrupt me, disturb me. And God's saying, just bask in my presence. Because it's when we get in his presence, then we find out of who he is and we say, yes, Lord, I'm available. Yes, Lord, what would you have me to do? Yes, Lord, at any time, anywhere, anyhow, I'll do it, Lord. Because when we're in his presence, we recognize that he loves us just the way we are. And when he loves us just the way that we are, we receive a comfort, a secret hiding place. I love you just the way you are. Remember that? It was like that great song. And God is saying, I love you just the way that you are. I want to change you. I want to conform you to the image of Jesus Christ. Just allow yourself to be available to me. But we have to be in his presence. Number two, what we have to see is that uh, for us, we need to be fully surrendered to God. We need to have a sincere awareness of our sinfulness. A sincere awareness of our sinfulness. Isaiah 6, 5, he says this, And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. What he's mean saying, Now, wow, I have seen the glory of God, Shekinah glory, the eternal sanctuary, and now I know who he is, and I know who I am. And when we compare ourselves to God, we can do nothing but say, Woe is me. Because we're unclean, we're sinful, we're wretched, we're evil, we're depraved. And by the way, welcome to Grace Church Waldorf, where I can just make sure you feel great today. But here's the thing. We're sinners in need of a Savior. We're sinners in need of Christ. Because Isaiah was standing before the throne and realizing that he was a man of unclean lips. In fact, the word, I am lost, means I'm destroyed. That's what the Hebrew word means, ruined. 
In fact, another meaning is I need to be silent. No rationalizing, no justifying, no questioning, not saying to God, I'm right, I got it all together. Just simply quiet and silent. Now, Isaiah is not absolutely silent because he sits before God. But we can clearly see that the Bible shows forth that there is no one righteous, no, not one. We are all depraved and sinners. There's nothing good in us outside of Christ. That God, when we're compared to him, we are sinners. So we can't be used of God if we, we have an attitude of arrogance. I need to be right. I will always get my way. I'm going to fight to get my way. We can't be used of God when we're bound up with unforgiveness. We can't be used of God when we're bound up with anger against everyone, especially God, for the circumstances in our lives. We can't play the victim nor imagine people are victims because of the Lord or the circumstance. We are not victims. We are responsible for our sin. We are sinners. And I love this. Let me tell you what I love. And you're going to think I'm crazy, but I love when God tells me I'm a sinner because then I know that's the boundary. That's what's set. I'm a sinner. Now, I either can be a victim or be victorious. And victorious means is that he is applied to my life because he is atoned through his son for me. So as a sinner now, he's committed to me to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ in my sanctification. And as I'm walking in my sanctification, I know that I'm a sinner saved by grace. That's the key phrase, saved by grace. So I don't have to live in my sinfulness or live in the idea that I'm sinful. I can live in knowing that because of Jesus, I'm victorious. He wants to conform me to the image of Jesus Christ. Y'all feeling me today or what? Because God is good. He's faithful. He's committed to us because he's committed to himself. He's loyal to his love for us. God who is holy, we got to forget this, God is holy that shows the distinctiveness of who we are as sinners, but God's love comes in as an unconditional love that's saying he's committed to us because he's committed to himself. And that's the beauty of holding on, knowing that we're not victims, because whenever we play the victim, we're saying God's not good enough. God can't get through my struggle and my trial. God can't change me. God can't make me available for him. God wants to change us. When we say, send me, we're making ourselves available, but God wants us to fully surrender to him. You know, I love it in the book of James, chapter 4, and verse 1, we're actually going through the book of James in the uh, middle school ministry. In chapter 4, we haven't arrived there yet, but I love what James says, because in the church, there's conflict between the Jews and the Christian Gentiles, and their conflict is because of the message of the gospel with Judaism and salvation. And so with grace and faith, there's that battle that's going on amongst the people, and the conflict and the confrontation that's occurring, James addresses it by saying this, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? It's that person and that person and that. No, it's not. He goes on. He says, is it not this that your passions are at war within you? So what he's saying is the discord isn't about the other person. The discord is in me. It's got to start with me. I'm the responsible sinner who needs God to cleanse me and change me. It's got to start with me. God desires for us to surrender. That's why verse 7 through 10 is so beautiful. He says, James goes, submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. 
Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. See, God is not interested in whether or not we have it all together. God is interested in changing us. What makes a strong Christian or a weak Christian? Who are we to question who's a strong Christian or a weak Christian? We can't do that. Ultimately, it's God's. God has to determine that. But if we're strong Christians and we claim to be, then I ask this question to all of us. Who are we discipling? Who are we coming alongside of to help the weaker Christian? Because that's what it takes, because we have to all humble ourselves before Almighty God and say, God, I submit to you and ask that you would use me, send me, make me available, interrupt me, disturb me, and let me disciple someone. That's the true mark of a true Christian, as, as Jesus would say in the book of John or the book of Luke or the book of Matthew, the book of Mark, throughout Scripture, and Paul talks about it. Discipleship is willing to die to self and live for him. That's the beauty of this message. Number three, in order to be fully surrendered to God, we need to have a sincere understanding of his grace, a sincere understanding of his grace. Now we look again in Isaiah 6, 6 through 7. The one, then one of the seraphim, remember the one who flies around, flew to me. He's serving the Lord around the altar. Here he is. He's serving, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongues from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Just love this because God uses the descriptive burning coals just as a, that, as a piece, as just as, as a symbolism of showing from the sacrificial altar he provides cleansing for the sinner. And so the burning coals not only shows of judgment with fire, but the smoke is coming to cleanse the lips of Isaiah because he's called out as a prophet. He's about to be used of God. And as he's called out as a prophet, he speaks the very words that God wants him to speak. So he's anointing his lips and he's cleansing him to be useful for his kingdom to be sent out. And here he's doing that. He's providing. He's showing that I want to do one thing here. I want to remove your guilt, because the guilt, the word in the Hebrew means to be caused by sin. When we sin, guilt remains. And in the Old Testament, there would be a guilt offering to remove the guilt. But beautiful that we know in Christ that the guilt is removed through the person and work of Jesus Christ for the atonement that was laid out. And the guilt that is removed because of God, and he's showing this, he's taken away, he goes, now it's removed forever. In the perfect tense, in the Hebrew means it's removed forever. And the atonement, when he says it's atoned for, it means to be exempt from punishment, to be covered. So here is God covering his sin and the sins around him and saying they'll be removed forever. It's forever. Meaning, in other words, what God is saying to him, as far as the east is from the west, so, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. It's all done. It's removed. In the perfect tense, meaning God took care of it. And today, we can say God took care of it through Jesus Christ. Lying lips, forgiven. Lustful thoughts, forgiven. Idle tendencies of worship, forgiven. Self-centered thoughts, forgiven. 
Secret sins that your spouse or no one else really knows about. Forgiven. All forgiven. All from as far as the east is to the west removed. And it was God's work. It was his doing. He presents himself in his glory but doesn't leave us there. And he reminds us and shows us and reveals to us that we're sinners. But he says, wait a minute. I have my grace. I've got my love through my son and I've offered it to you. And when we are basking in his presence and enjoying the fact that we're sinners, if you want to enjoy that, and then all of a sudden you realize that, wow, there's grace, because where there's sinners, there's grace, then we can enjoy the grace of God and say, here am I, Lord, send me. That's where we can get to that place of send me. That's where we can say, Lord, here I am, available. Lord, here I am, interrupt me. Here I am, Lord, disturb me. Whatever it is, God's saying, here I am, use me. Send me. So how do we fully surrender to God? It's real simple. I think it's by feeding the spirit and not the flesh. By feeding the spirit and not the flesh. See, the flesh in us is about my agenda. You know, Galatians chapter 5 Verse 16, I'm about to show you verse 17, talks about when you're feeding the flesh and not the lust of our flesh, or feeding the spirit, not the lust of our flesh. What happens is lust, the word, is cravings. And we tend to have cravings, as I talked about last week, all those things around us, the worldly passions, uh, the worldly possessions. And sometimes what we say, God, sure, send me, Lord, but what's in it for me if you send me? God, if I pray this dangerous prayer, will you make sure that I can still have my comforts and my conveniences? Could you make sure that you take care of all these different things in my life that I can have? Please, Lord, don't make me give up my clothes. Don't make me give up my music. Don't make me give up my hunting. Don't make me give up my golf. Whatever. See, whatever we do, there's a craving. And craving can really hurt us. And so that's why he says in Galatians 5, 17, it says, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For those are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And the cravings are all around us. You know, like when it's 10 o'clock at night and there's a commercial and you see a juicy steak or some shrimp, or you see a nice juicy hamburger with some fries, and then um, someone's chewing on some potato chips on the commercial, and oh, your son, you're just like, I'm hungry. I'm hungry. And, the, and then my wife tells me, no, you're not. You're just seeing something. You have cravings. Stop it. And I'm like, no, I, I, I got to eat something right now. I got to No, 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 no. You don't have to do that. I was doing that last night. It was like 10 o'clock, 10.30. I was sleeping in bed. My wife came in. I was already practically trying to sleep. I was going to bed early. And all of a sudden, I woke up and I said, honey, um, do you have any more of that bread that you made for tomorrow? And she goes, no, it's all done. I said, okay, because um, you you're making meatloaf and I really like bread with the meatloaf. She goes, no bread. She goes, you can't have bread. And I was like, oh man. She goes, why are you thinking about bread right now? I don't know. I have a craving. I can taste it right now in my mouth. I just want to have some bread right now. She's like, stop. Just go to bed. And I'm like sitting there and I'm thinking, why? Why is it so tough to say no to the to cravings? Because what feeds, what you feed grows, but what you starve dies. 
Meaning I've got to stop feeding myself with these cravings and start starving myself from them and saying no. There is a sense of commitment and dedication that says, I am not going to do this, even though I want to, even though I feel it. It's all in my mouth and chewing and the bread and the homemade bread, and I'm going crazy. And then when with homemade bread, I need some pasta. And then I get some pasta and the meatballs. And all of a sudden, it's just a big meal. And it's 10 o'clock at night. And then it grows. And the next morning, I go, wow, why did it grow a little bit? Because I ate too much. Because I ate on my cravings. I didn't starve myself like I should. I should keep myself from my cravings. That's what it comes down to. And see, when God's calling us, we got to be willing to feed the spirit, not the flesh. Be totally surrendered to God. Because when we make ourselves available, when you and I become available to God, he might ask you or I to go to Africa as a missionary. But it's far more likely he would invite you to be a missionary at your work. So how should we respond to the Lord when he calls? Here am I. Don't send me. Should we do Jonah? Here am I. Send someone else like Moses. Here am I. Send me. Fully surrendered, obedient, aware of your presence, aware of my sinfulness, aware of your grace, and experiencing it all. Because when we do, we're ready to go. Really excited, no matter what, to surrender. So when we pray this dangerous prayer, we have to be willing to die to self. Galatians 2.20 says this, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I pray that you and I would be able to have this attitude to say, here am I, send me. I'm going to give you a moment right now before we go into communion. Would you pray that prayer? And if you don't sense that prayer right now, don't do it. Don't do it. Let God speak to you and minister to you. But if you are ready to do that and say that prayer, be ready to be used of God and expect him to change your agenda, because he will, but for his glory and not ours. I'm going to give you a moment. Let's pray. Just bow your heads and to close your eyes and, and see if you can ask God that simple prayer. Lord, it's just a couple of words, but such powerful words. Because in just a couple of words, send me, we're saying, Lord, I'm available no matter where, no matter what, no matter how, no matter when. Here I am ready to go. Willing to follow you. Willing to say, interrupt me, disturb me. What would you have me to do? Serve with the children's ministry? I'm there, Lord. Serve in the youth ministry. I'm there, Lord. Serve in the fit ministry here. I'm there, Lord. Serve in any way. Or, Lord, 
minister to someone at work and share the gospel, I'm there, Lord. Talk to my neighbor and pray for them and ask that you would help me to be a witness to them. I'm there, Lord. Talk to a family member as you've been nudging me for years to talk to them about Jesus. I'm there, Lord. Whatever it takes, here am I. Send me. Oh, God, today, I pray that that would be the cry of our heart throughout this week and every day for that matter. We're crucified with Christ. It is no longer I live, but I now live for you because of what you've done for me. And Lord, we're reminded even now in communion of your son being willing to die. He gave himself up on our behalf as a ransom for many, for our sin. Lord, we're grateful. We're reminded today of the elements before us. The bread and the drink. The bread reminding us of the body that was mangled and broken and for the blood that was shed as redemption for the forgiveness of our sin. Lord, as we enter into communion, as we reflect, may I pray that, God, you would prepare our hearts even now. In Jesus' name.